Hey, Forge family. Last episode, number 10, we observed Jacob's reunion with Esau. It had 20 years between them. had gone totally different directions. And now there's this tension and fear that's built up in Jacob as he limps toward his brother. He's laid out his family behind him. But he's limping toward his brother. His Esau rides at him with a troop of 400 mounted men. See, Esau travels with a militia. He's a man who lives with the sword. So Jacob is using the ancient Near East protocol of bowing himself to the ground seven times and referring to himself as your servant and of Esau as Lord. And Esau skids to a stop. Uh, leaps out of the saddle of the camel and runs and engulfs Jacob in an embrace. They hug, they kiss, and they weep because 20 years have passed between these twin brothers. And then the senior, if you will, of the two, Esau wants to know, who are, who are all these people here with you? And Jacob introduces his children doesn't mention his wives, but his children are to him the visible evidence that God is keeping his promise, that he will have descendants like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea. And he can look at them and say, see, God is faithful. And then Esau says, well, what about those five companies, those five, if you will, armies, is also another way to translate that word, that I met on the way, the, the magnanimous gift of 550 choice male and female animals, and Jacob says, well, they were sent to get your favor. And, and here's God standing in the shadows as Jacob makes restitution to Esau for having deceived him, cheated him out of the birthright and the blessing. Now, um, that relationship is finally restored when Esau accepts those gifts. If you recall at the end of that, I urged us all to consider if any, any uh, relationships are out there that are wounded and broken and distant, and yet the Lord keeps pushing on you and saying, remember her, remember him. And I want you to make up. I want you to be together. And at the same time, the Lord is pushing you perhaps to make restitution for some you didn't mean to break it. You didn't mean to borrow it and lose it. But there's something amiss in the relationship because you haven't made it right. So I urged us all to consider that and then go in the power of the Holy Spirit and make things right. So when we begin chapter, um, or at the end of chapter 33 here before we begin, I want to pray before we start into episode number 11. So, Lord the Spirit, we ask you, Lord, to cause this scripture to come alive for us. It's difficult. It is one of the difficult passages, Lord. Uh, family trauma. Lord, uh, we're going to zoom in. We're going to zoom out. Uh, please help us make sense of it in our personal lives. And also, Lord, in the life of Forge Church. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, Forge, you recall that Esau urged Jacob to accompany him with all his family and in, in, in the herds and and servants had come 120 miles south to Mount Seir and live in proximity to him. 
But you see, the lives of those two twin brothers are total opposites. You have a man who lives by the sword and is absolutely self-reliant and has no interest in, in a relationship with this God of Israel. And then you have Jacob, who has a new name, who has a promise of God. He, he, his faith is rising, and he is the carrier of the seed that's going to pass through his line to David and ultimately to Jesus. <clears throat> and so they, we watched as, as Esau mounted up and rode south, and Jacob takes his herds and his family, and he turns north. He goes the opposite direction. And eventually, after stopping at Succoth, he arrives at the outskirts of a town called Shechem. Um, this is in chapter 33, beginning in verse 18. Now Shechem is located, was located, the, the word Shechem means shoulder or saddle, and it's really the notch. It's a pass, if you will, between two mountains, between Mount um, Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And um, in that notch, in that saddle, was this town called Shechem. It sat right on top of some trade routes. There was the ridge route that ran from Hebron to Bethlehem to Jerusalem and then north, 30 miles, and you get all the way up to Shechem. It was the high route that was headed straight north into the country of the Galilee. At the same time, there was another trade route that came from the east off the Transjordan plateaus out to the east, dropped into the Jordan Valley, came up the same route that Jacob used, comes up the Jordan River, passes through Shechem, goes through the notch, through that saddle, and comes out into the Jezreel Valley to the west, this breadbasket, this immensely fertile piece of land. And as, from there, you can go to the coast. You can go north and come out at Haifa, you know, to the, at the foot of Mount Carmel, or you can go a little bit southeast and come out at Joppa. So uh, this, this, con this connection of two major trade routes right there speaks to Jacob. There's commerce to be done right there. So he sets up his tents in proximity to the Shechem. Now, archaeology says at that time there were individual houses in Shechem. They were, they were stone foundation, and on top of that they built mud brick houses. They were Canaanite peoples living there, the Hivites. And at that crossroad, okay, that it, was, it was known by the Egyptians, it was known in the Amarna uh, letters, in these ancient writings, that there were grapes, wheat, livestock, and pottery. It was a trading center. Jacob likes what he sees, and he buys land. He pays 100 pieces of some sort of money, whether it was what they call hack silver, chunks of money he cut off of a block, but a hundred pieces of something, some, some monetary thing, was handed over to Hamor, who was, if you will, the, the leader, the king of that particular tribal area. And uh, he got title to a piece of land. And on that land, Jacob erects an altar, and he worships El Elohe Israel, God, the God of Israel. Now we start in chapter 34. Dinah, the daughter of Leah. Remember, she's the seventh born child, okay, of Leah. <clears throat> Gets up and 
everybody else is up in the morning having their coffee and they're looking at the sunrise. Okay? They're looking east. And Dinah goes out the back, lifts the flap of the tent, slips through the wadi, drops behind the bush, and scampers away. This little woman child is between 14 and 16 years old. And the text says she went out to see the women of Shechem. And another way to translate that is she went out to be seen by the women of Shechem. And when she's in town, alone, unsupervised, no chaperone, mind you, there's nobody guarding her back. Shechem, it's the name of the town, but he's also the son, the prince, if you will, Shechem, the son of Hamor, sees this woman child. And he saw her, he took her, and he raped her. He lay with her by force. He violated her. That word is always used in scripture for a violation. It's never descriptive of marital sex. Never. Okay? Another way to translate it was he humbled her. You know, he, he made a, a mess of her life at that point. Okay? It's the same phrasing that's used in Genesis 6 verse 2 where it says the sons of God saw that the sons of men had beautiful daughters and they took them as wives. It's the same uh, violation, if you will. <clears throat> now, what Dinah did, according to George Sarna, George is a commentator, uh, the Torah commentary. Um, George said, what Dinah did was improper and imprudent. And he says, quote, girls of marriageable age would not leave a rural encampment to go unchaperoned into an alien city, unquote. This little woman child is asking for trouble. She got it. Abraham, Isaac, and Rebekah, in the immediate previous chapters we've already gone through, they were appalled by Canaanite lifestyles. And they all said, don't take a wife. Don't intermarry with the Canaanites. Don't have anything to do with the Canaanites. Well, Jacob has lapsed as a parent. And now his daughter has been raped and is being held captive in Shechem. We don't know that until later in the text, but she never comes home. Okay? Now, this is, this is the first recorded violation of this, this rape in Scripture. Others will follow, and they always have that sense of violation. But in this case, it's, it's someone who was high-handed. He takes the law to his own, in, in his own hands. And there's this tyrannical behavior. You know, it's, it's uh, I, I'm in charge here. I can take whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. And that was what Shechem did. He shifts you know, into this full-blown lust mode and then having uh, slept with this woman, this, this, with Dinah, his heart goes out to her and he realizes she's beautiful and I, I, I love her. Well, that's, that's one way to describe it. That's how the world describes it. The world says, oh, I'm in love. Well, uh, trust me, that has nothing to do with biblical <laughs> marriage or biblical exchange of emotions. Okay, and, and he begins to speak to Dinah, his captive, of his love and his tenderness for her. Then he goes to his father, Hamor, and this is the text. The text says, this is what the son says to the father. Get me this young girl for a wife, quote, unquote. Not a lot of respect, if you will. 
between son and father. Now, somewhere along the line here, Jacob has heard, number one, there's a kerfuffle going on back there in Leah's tent because Dinah didn't come home. And the, the scuttlebutt he's hearing is um, she's been taken and raped. Now, all his sons are going about the business of the herds, and they're not home. They're out in the field with herds. And Jacob waits for them to return. The sons come home. Six of them are the elder brothers of Dinah. They're her older brothers. And the other six are, are, are related. You know, this is my half-sister over here who's just been violated. Okay? They're grieved. They're angry. Okay? And they say flat out, Shechem has done what was disgraceful. They've dishonored Israel. They've dishonored us. Okay? Here comes Hamor. Here comes, here comes the king, if you will, the, the head of the village, head of this little town. And he begins. There's no apology here. There's no, oh, my son did a bad thing. There's none of that. He says, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. So he's trying to look kind of through the crowd, if you will, of all these brothers to get to Jacob. And he says, the soul of my son longs for your daughter. Please give her to him in marriage. And then he starts to sweeten the deal. You know, the second line of argument is, oh, and I, we want you to intermarry with us. And third, we want you to live with us. You know, there's, the land is wide open. You can live and you can trade and you can acquire property. And then his son steps up. Son is standing behind dad in this. Shechem says to Jacob and to the sons of Jacob, just name your price. Ask any bride price. But give her to me. I'm willing to pay anything for her. Just, just name your price and I'll, she's, I'll take her. Okay, Jacob's sons answer Hamor and Shechem. Now notice, it's not Joseph who, uh, Jacob who answers. It's Jacob's sons. Okay, they arrange themselves, if you will, in front. And they answer Hamor and Shechem with deceit. And they say, oh, this is, this is impossible. We can't possibly have... Marriage is between us because, you know, you're not circumcised. And that's not allowed. So, so if you all get circumcised, then, then this will work. And, and we, can have, we can have some marriages between us and we can be in relationship with each other. Okay, Forge, right here, we need to zoom out. We need to pull back from this. See, we have to have the perspective of what God has said already and what he's preparing to do. Okay. Number one, God told three generations to keep away from Canaanite culture. Number two, God led Abraham and his descendants into a covenant relationship with him in that land, on that land, and he sealed that by every male in the family was going to be circumcised on the eighth day. And that was done in the presence of, of the Lord, so that that child was offered up as a covenant keeper to the Lord. A third, Jacob's first wife, Leah. Do you remember chapter 29? It says of her, 
remember, he was tricked. Jacob was tricked by Laban. You know, Laban loaded him up with fig wine or whatever it was he was drinking at the marriage ceremony, marriage celebration. It was pitch dark. The bride was veiled, and Laban slips his older daughter, Leah, into Jacob's bed. So when Jacob awakes in the morning, he goes, oh, that's not Rachel. And he rushes to Laban and says, what have you done? And he's on the hook for another seven years of labor to his uncle. And then immediately followed, it's in the text, it says, Leah was unloved. Literally, Leah was hated. See, Jacob had another new wife. He had his beloved Rachel. But Jacob used Leah. And she began to bear children. He had sex with her. Okay, he used her as a baby-making machine, but he hated her. Now, I realize we're going to deal with some dysfunctional family issues here in a little bit, but that, as appalling as that sounds, that's what he did. Okay, He did sleep with his wife, and she conceived. So in, in Genesis 29, verse 32, it says of Leah that she conceived... Okay? And she begins to bear children. She just, it says, Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, and Rachel, but Rachel was barren. Verse 32 says, And Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. And then she conceived again, second son, bore a son, and, because, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated. He has therefore given me this son also, named him Simeon. And she conceives again and bears a son and says, Now this time my husband will become attached to me. He'll, he'll live with me. He'll want me. Named him Levi. And finally, number four son, she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. So if there's a shift in Leah, okay, but she starts out being the unloved wife. Now you turn the page, you go over to chapter 30, verse 18. Remember, she stops bearing Rachel. You know, Rachel steps in, offers her, offers her uh, handmaid, if you will. And uh, that, that handmaid to Jacob is a wife, and they have children. And finally, there's this, this kind of seamy thing over the armload of mandrake plants that Reuben finds in the fields. And they barter for who gets to sleep with Jacob. And the Lord remembers, it says, the Lord remembers Leah, and she conceives again a fifth son. And she said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband, and she named her son Issachar. And then she conceives again and bears a sixth son to Jacob. God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I have borne him six sons, and she named him Zebulun. And then verse uh, 23, okay, uh, excuse me, verse um, immediately following the, the birth of Zebulun, it says, and afterward, it's almost as an afterthought, the text, the narrator says, okay, and afterward, she conceived a daughter and named her Dinah. Okay, so here's this little woman child, okay, and she's raised in a house 
where there's all this intrigue going on between the women. She's the only single woman in the house other than servants, okay? And so if the, if the women get together, what are they going to talk about? Jacob and how bad he is or how good he is or whatever it is. And, and, and mom's stories, Leah's stories, mom's emotions, mom, mother Leah's tears, Mother Leah's placement in the family so that if, if Esau runs down Jacob and runs down Bilhah and Zilpah and the children, guess what? Leah's next. Okay? And so this little woman child who's 14, 15, 16 is in, been raised in mom's tent, if you will, in Leah's tent. And she's the last, the least, and this little woman child is lost. Okay? Now, if you zoom zoom back in again, all right, you start thinking about what women wear in a herding camp and how they smelled when they work with animals all the time. It's going to be real different than what women wear and how they smell in town. And so it's just natural or in the natural curiosity. She goes out the back door. She lifts the flap. She drops in the wadi. She scampers into town Okay, <clears throat> because, you know, for years and years, there's been, Jacob has been separated. His camp is separated from Laban. There's no visitors. There's no cousins. Laban's sons don't come to visit because they're taking care of dad's herds three days away. Now, the tragic outcome is she's taken, she's violated, and she's held captive. <clears throat> Her brothers step up in front of dad and they apply Jacob-level deceit. See, they've learned watching the battles between dad and Laban and hearing dad's stories about what he did to Esau, what he did to Isaac. See, they, they have caught the deceit bug in the house and they turn to Hamor and his son Okay, and in so doing and requiring circumcision, they violate, they debase the covenant of God that includes circumcision to show in their own body that they're set apart to the God of Israel. And they're, they're, they're holding out this to the Canaanites as a way to get into relationship. Okay, note that, that Jacob has failed to lead. He has failed to correct his sons and he's failed to rescue his daughter. Hamar goes back home, walks into the city, and he makes a very slippery, smooth presentation to the men, to the families. He says, look, these, these herds guys out here, wealthy, 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 wealthy herds guys outside of town, they want to have peaceful relationships with us. There's plenty of room for all of them it's an economic advantage to us. And he sort of seals the deal by, by basing this covenant. It's going to be based on avarice. It's going to be good for our wallet. All we got to do is step outside and get circumcised, guys. And so he leads the men out and they are circumcised and go home to heal. On the third day after circumcision, when they're at their greatest discomfort, when if, if there's any infection, it's up and it's up and moving. If they've got fevers. It's debilitating pain. And at that point, Simeon and Levi 
two older brothers of Dinah. It says they killed every male in the city. They went through and systematically slaughtered. Now, whether they did it alone or whether they had servants with them, eh, Scripture doesn't say. But the Lord holds them accountable. Simeon and Levi kill all the males. And on the way out of town, they plunder the city. You see, Jacob was going to get plundered in this deal with Hamor. Okay? We're going to make a buck off of Jacob and his people because they're right here and we can, we can do business with him. In contrast to that, the sons kill the Hivites and plunder the city. It's really a foreshadowing of what happens in the wars of Canaan when the armies of the Lord come through and they kill all the Canaanite peoples that are easy to kill. They don't take them all, okay? That's another story. But they, got, they take cities and vineyards and wine presses and, and, and you know, everything that's there is now theirs, okay? So forge, zoom out. Don't get blown away by all this stuff, okay? We need to figure out what is it that's going on here. Okay, Jacob has not gone on to Bethel to keep his vow to God. Comes back into the land, meets with the angels, meets with his brother, wanders around and sucketh, comes up to Shechem, and just builds an altar. See, what he's trying to do is worship God in his own way, in his own place. And yet he'd made a vow that he was going back to Bethel. Jacob buys some land, but he bought it right next door to this Canaanite town. Jacob does not watch guard his daughter. He does not explain and protect his children from Canaanite culture. Jacob is silent while his sons deceive Hamor. And when the slaughter happens and the town is pillaged, he doesn't yell at his sons for the moral injustice, the over-the-top the over slaughter. Yes, justice needed to be done. They went way over the top okay, with this because he is afraid for his life. He's not concerned about Dinah's trauma. He's concerned that there's going to be others from the Canaanite tribes that will come and have revenge on him. So in episode number eight, a couple, three times ago, Jacob expressed moral indignation at having been cheated by Laban. Here in this episode number 11, Jacob has no moral indignation when his own daughter is violated. In episode 10 last week, Jacob is a leader. He's out in front, leading his family, ordering his family, praying to the Lord. Here, episode 11, absolutely silent, weak leader, and he's filled with fear. Now, Forge, we all stumble. We don't all get it right every time when we start walking with the Lord, okay? Sometimes we stumble late in life. All you have to do is look at senior leaders who don't finish well. Okay, we all stumble. We all struggle to tell the truth, all the truth, all the time. Okay, that, that's, that is the nature of, of us. We are yet being made new. So here is Jacob. He's an absentee dad. He's a neglectful dad. His lack of care for Leah bears bitter fruit in Dinah, his daughter. 
forge. We, we all grew up in dysfunctional families. They're dysfunctional in some measure. And we brought that over into our present homes and families. Okay? Now, if you're feeling Dinah's plight of that that young girl was abused and that touches something deep inside of you, realize abuse is abuse is abuse is abuse. If you're, if you're sexually molested, that's abuse. If you're screamed at and slapped, that's abuse. If you're called filthy names, that's abuse. If you're ignored and shut out, that is abuse. All of us have experienced some level of that. Okay? But if you're feeling Dinah's plight, I'm asking you to pay attention. If, if you're ensnared in the way of ways of deceit that you learned from dad or mom, you know, how I learned to fight, how I learned to argue, how I learned to get even what in my childhood, and it's still with you, pay attention. You see, you take that mess. You take that mess, the little corner of life that's still there, still festering, still fearful, still hurts. And you take that and you drop it at the feet of Jesus. And you pour out your agreement with him. It's wrong. It's called confession. Okay, Confession just means you agree. The Lord doesn't need to be informed what he already knows about what that is. What I'm saying is you come and you agree with him. You confess. And his forgiveness will flow to you as promised. So if you're feeling alienated and there's deceit that's all over you, okay, bring that, drop that, okay? Ask Holy Spirit to point out a new way to walk. You want to ask Holy Spirit to teach you His ways for today. You ask Holy Spirit to lead you to love your yet unborn children and grandchildren. You ask Holy Spirit, how do I parent the ones I've got so that abuse isn't passed generationally and we don't replay Dinah and we don't replay the sons of Jacob. Heavenly Father, we ask you now to make sense of this. It's painful. It's messy. And yet you are the Redeemer in the middle of that who says, take the lesson and turn to me and walk my way. Lord, we want to do that. Lay our lives in your hands. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge, love you. We'll see you soon.